0: Exocast
1: Exocast
0: Exocast Exocast
1: Exocast 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 Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. Coming up on the show today, I'm going to be talking about the four NASA flagship missions which have been proposed for the 2030s. Hannah's had a chat with people at the Exoplimes V, or 5, conference It's probably 5, isn't it? Um, And Andrew will cover the goings-on in the news, including some very recent results, so stay tuned for that. But first, let's introduce the Exocast family. My name's Hugh Osborne, and I'm a postdoc at LAM in Marseille, in France, studying uh, Plato and transiting exoplanets.
0: I'm Hannah Wakeford, and I'm a postdoc at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, and I characterize the atmospheres of exoplanets using the Hubble Space Telescope. And
2: I'm Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral astrobiologist at the University of California at Irvine.
1: So how's things, everyone? How's um, how's your summer been, Hannah?
0: Busy, very, very busy. I uh, I started my summer off with, uh, in fact, accepting a job offer as a lecturer. Oh, yes. congratulations. At Bristol University in the UK, so we'll be uh, swapping time zones for Exocast in the future. That's more price to pay. Many congrats, Hannah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. scary, and it, the, the 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 funny thing is trying to describe it to people. You're British as well, so you might understand it. So I just, it, I feel embarrassed, and I and it's such a British feeling to have when you get something or yeah. when you do something. You have to immediately downplay
2: it, and you know, imposter syndrome kicking in pretty strongly. Oh, of course, very polite imposter syndrome. Like, is it possible that maybe <laughs> I'm a fraud? yeah Is it possible? Yeah. <laughs>
1: But you're definitely not Hannah,
0: no. right? <laughs> no, I know. And I, I don't feel like I would ever describe it like that. But I, I think the, the the embarrassment of it being something that people congratulate you on. And I'm just like, ah, I think is very funny because it's so British and it's just so ingrained in there. So I, I find it entertaining <laughs> at that point. But Hugh, yeah. you also have some very good news. Well, yeah. So, so I
1: thought, oh, I'll come to the U.S., and we'll, um, we'll have, be on the same time zone for this podcast for once. But no, you go and throw a spanner in that. Because, yeah, I'm, so I'm moving to MIT at the start of next year.
2: Um, awesome. Fantastic. Fantastic. For
1: a, for a fellowship thing. Yeah,
2: com- yeah, congrats to you. Congratulations all around in the Exocast studio today. It's fantastic.
0: Yeah, and congratulations to Andrew, who managed to get his visa renewed yes. as well. <laughs> I was going to start
2: talking <laughs> about that. It's, it's maybe less of uh, a triumph and more of a slog. Yeah. Um, Uh, My summer so far has been a mixture of, yeah, traveling for for fun, traveling to go back to the UK to see my family, and also traveling to the US Embassy to ask them very kindly to give me another visa to stay here for a year, which they did, (laughs) fortunately. And, you know, that's something we as academics you know science nomads occasionally have to deal with um Hannah I know you've had to deal with it, and Hugh yeah you know coming up no, coming up to deal with it with yourself not looking forward to so that. it's that that extra time that extra effort that's sometimes needed to convince bureaucrats to uh, allow you to carry on doing your work and justifying it to yourself and to them it can be it can be difficult but fortunately I think we're all now employed for another short amount of time and we can
1: yeah, somewhat it's relax so good. <laughs> yeah
2: Oh science.
0: Yeah.
1: In lieu of a guest this month, we continue to tour different Exoplanet conferences and this time Hannah has been at Exoclimes, so let's throw it over to her in Oxford.
0: This month I spent a week at Exoclimes 5 uh, in Oxford and I wanted to ask people what they wanted to learn most about other subjects
3: that they don't currently study.
0: Could you tell me your name, affiliation,
3: and what kind of objects do you study these? Emily Rauscher at the University of Michigan. Primarily hot Jupiters.
2: Aaron Carter, the University of Exeter. I
1: study transiting objects, but actually I also study directly imaged objects because I'm interested in looking at the edges of both of their populations and seeing how they sort of compare to each other.
4: Laura Mayorga, I'm at the Center for Astrophysics. I study giant planets mainly, but also some terrestrials. Megan Mansfield at the University
5: of Chicago. I study mostly hot Jupiters right now. I do observational stuff on transiting hot Jupiters, um, although someday I want to look at smaller planets
6: too. So. so I'm Peter Wheatley from the University of Warwick. So I study uh, exoplanets. I work in a project called NGTS where we're, we have telescopes. So we're looking for uh, Neptune-sized planets orbiting quite bright stars. So these are planets that we hope to be able to study the atmospheres in some detail. And so having them at a bright star really helps.
3: My
5: name is Sarah Moran, and I'm a grad student at Johns Hopkins University. Primarily, I study exoplanets of the terrestrial and super earth to mini neptune
3: regime. I'm Suzanne Egrin from the University of Oxford. I study exoplanets and the stars that they go around.
6: I'm Watsil Panwar. I'm a second-year PhD student at University of Amsterdam. I mostly study transiting hot Jupiters, but I'm also getting more interested in sub-Neptunes and more terrestrial targets now.
3: I'm Vivian
2: Parmentier, I work in Oxford, um, mainly big and hot planets.
0: I'm Shamila Miguel from Leiden Observatory. I study giant planets and also exoplanets. And what's the biggest question that you have or thing that you want to know about something that you don't study? Oh, something that I don't study. Hmm interesting let me think this
4: might take a while
0: <laughs> uh, well I, I i found very interested all the brown dwarfs. um actually i don't know much about those but they i think they are very interesting objects and i would like to read and know a bit more about those like there are so many questions that i don't even know where to start but just as a start which is the difference with planets and where is the real limit and
2: where's the methane
0: <laughs> you study those
2: kinds of planets? Well, I study hotter ones, but I'm... Yeah, okay. You know, what I don't study, why was Venus uh, got its re-surfacing? That seems crazy! How does that happen?
6: I want to know what the interior of hot Jupiter's look like, or what happens there, basically. So we don't know that for well enough for Jupiter itself. But I still want to know no, how if, 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 if we can probe that for hot Jupiters yeah, yeah, because we we can already probe so much in their atmospheres. So if we can uh, try to connect that with what's happening inside, so basically trying to retrieve interior properties from hot Jupiters from their atmospheric measurements or some other measurements. I don't work on that, but I find that ex- extremely exciting.
3: I'm really curious about planets with magma oceans that we're going to hear about later on because I've been involved in the discovery of some of them, but I really don't understand anything about geophysics really. So that's the aspect that I'm most excited about.
5: I don't understand brown dwarfs at all. And so I would sort of like to know even just things about how they form, especially in binaries. Is that mechanism different than things that we think of as as stars or are they just truly failed stars, like kind
6: of the popular... Pictures. Well, exoclimes a lot of exoclimes is about modelling planetary atmospheres. And this is something I know very little about. So one of the things I'm really hoping to learn more here is what are the challenges, what are the successes, what are the progress in understanding the structures and compositions of exoplanet atmospheres?
5: A big thing that I want to know is what are super-Earths slash mini-Neptunes? Like, are they scaled-up Earths, scaled-down Neptunes, water worlds? Like, there's so many different options for just fitting like the radius and mass of those, I would like to know what they're actually made of.
4: So that's something I don't study. I want to know. Hmm, <laughs> That's a tough question. There's a lot of things I want to know. Well, in general, like I've always really liked the lab astrophysics stuff. So like everything they do is interesting because it's like i feel like that's the truth right like of everything we do like oh yeah first principles so exciting thrilling but like lab stuff is just so interesting uh, they're actually like literally making these atmospheres in their lab and like everything they do is new and everything they do is really important for everything that the rest of us do um, as far as like what is actually going on in an atmosphere
2: i would actually pick something from the solar system Something like, yeah, Jupiter's, like, freaking awesome. Like, the the Juno mission is, like, incredible. Like, it literally blew me away. I just, all I'm thinking is, like, will we ever send us a probe to, like, a hot Jupiter and we're able to see all the crazy stuff there as well? No. Yeah, that's that, that would be the one for me.
3: Mm, I've been really enjoying the evolution talks this morning, atmospheres. And I, yes. I love kind of this, not tension, but uh, evaporation versus... Core powered mass loss and thinking about all the different physics that go into play and how we're starting to actually confront these theories with observations, I think is really neat.
0: And what's your favorite object that you haven't studied or published on?
3: Oh, no, that's not a fair question. Mm, favorite? I think some of these really variable brown dwarfs. I think they're really, really neat. I don't know the names of them, I'm sorry, but I think that it's really interesting how they're showing us this multi dimensional information about brown dwarf atmospheres which share many similarities with exoplanets.
2: Jupiter's
1: like, frickin' awesome.
3: HD 207A2b. It is the most
4: eccentric planet that we know about. Um, how an atmosphere changes when you're super eccentric because you're, you have different atmospheric forcing and so you expect things like the chemistry to change, the clouds to change, the hazes to form to change, everything. Um, and that's just something that we have no real grasp on. Um, GCMs can't do it. so. It'll come down, to I think, to observations and then whatever you can do as far as, like, time variable lab studies. Wouldn't that be interesting?
5: Okay, so I am going to go with Proxima 1b um, because, or Proxima Centauri b or whatever, um, because there's an incredible book called The Sparrow that is about a planet that's around Alpha Centauri, but, like, that's pretty close to Proxima Centauri, and it's a good book, so you should read it.
6: <laughs> Jupiter. So I've, I've, I don't know much about the solar system, which is pretty shocking because I'm interested in planets. And I also have to teach a course on the solar system. <laughs> but, but some of the pictures we saw today at the conference um, uh, from the Juno mission of Jupiter just makes it so real. It's so not a real object. You can, you can see it in 3D. And it's really motivated me to want to find out more about our nearby planets as well as distant planets. I love Pluto.
3: Pluto is the best. probably have to go... With TRAPPIST-1, I expect it's going to be the answer that many of us are going to give, but um, it is probably one of the most interesting objects that I haven't worked on.
6: I would say Titan. British stars. I want to
2: work on British Hours one day, they're awesome. The Sun. Brilliant,
5: thank
0: you very much. <laughs> So the, the singing that you just heard at the end there was led by a contingent of earth scientists from Chicago University. Um, they invited anyone who had ever been at Chicago University to join in with the song. They went away and practiced apparently at one point. Um, and it was actually recorded in the college bar. We were at Merton College in Oxford. Uh, it was down in this in, in this college bar, which was, it felt like it was underground. Um, and we there was a, one of the evenings was a open jam session. So people brought along their instruments. Uh, Ray-Pierre Humbert who was running the conference brought along his accordion. Amazing. Um, and uh, everybody everybody got together and there was just this massive sing-along at the end. I managed to capture some of the the sounds of that conference and a lot of the, the noises you were hearing in the background were either during the coffee break when I managed to get to talk to people or during dinner time. So we had dinner in this massive, gorgeous, Harry Potter esque <laughs> hall. Uh, with a stage at the front for you know the fancy people. I managed to get up on the stage like a good three times, I think, and then uh, four long tables. Everyone got to pick their house that they were in. So uh, it was uh, a really good conference, a really amazing group of people. Um, one of the the things I love about exoclimes it's a really learning conference. You go there to learn about a huge number of different topics and the talks are all an hour, half hour, 20 minutes. So they're not short talks, they're long talks from people and you get to really explore the, the details of different subjects then. So that's what Climbs is all about. Um, I followed Exoclimes by going to a completely different style of exoplanet conference, the Extreme Solar Systems Conference in Iceland. So the following week after that week of conference, I went to another conference because I'm insane. Um, And that one was 600 astronomers compared to just over 100, where the talks were all 15 minutes long and they had to be snappy. They had to be brand new results. They had to be... uh, in most cases unpublished still so it was a really very different atmosphere and a different way of doing things so it was an interesting summer for me
1: yeah i'm jealous i really wanted to go to the iceland one because it's you know such a cool place to visit but in the end i kind of conferenced myself out
2: yeah (laughs) Yeah. agreed. that did seem like there was some (laughs) a really cool backdrop to some really cool science going on
1: yeah
0: Yeah, I I definitely conferenced myself out. I came back after a month of travel and conferences, three conferences I went to in a row, and I came back with a nice cold and lost my voice, so... um Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, you know, when
2: I was at the conference last recording my segment, I, I had remnants of a voice l- l- <laughs> left by yeah. the end of the week. <laughs> um, so it, it's one of the vocational hazards. The I toils
0: guess. we go through. It is. is
2: the small price that we pay. But I guess the interesting thing was, you know, the segment that you recorded at Exoclimbs did have the emphasis of like, what don't you know and what do you want to learn about? And it seemed very in keeping with the theme that people were like, oh, well, well, mainly brown dwarfs, right? Because they are cool. Um, right. But it, it seemed like people were aware of things outside of their a relatively small bubble, I guess, within Exoplanet Science.
0: Yeah. And that was one of the really big points about exoclimes is to get people outside of that bubble. The, it started back in 2010 as a bridge between solar system scientists and exoplanet scientists. And it's really expanded a lot. We had some Brown Dwarf people there giving some presentations and, and we had lots of solar system science. We had lab science. We had uh, a huge amount of earth science and loads of different types of exoplanets that were kind of being explored and the different ways that we can observe them. It it was really fascinating and i i wrote so many notes down but one thing that was missing was the connection to stars to heliophysics so i think there's still different gaps that we can bridge across all communities it's just so hard when you it needs to be a small group it needs to be just over 100 people for you to have that kind of learning experience rather than kind of what you get extreme solar systems which is hundreds of people or agu which is thousands of people where it's really just a smattering of the the highlights. Um, so I think it's a very different set of conferences and you need you need both of those. Yeah, it seems like one has a kind of dissemination angle, like here's the results that
2: we've we've done and, and here's the you know the overview that of the narrative in fifteen minutes. Whereas it can be a bit more explanatory or collaborative in a smaller in a smaller conference like oh, here's what we're thinking of doing or here's a cool idea that we had and here's how we actually actually did it in, you know in human sense so, yeah you get best of both worlds there i guess
0: but it was great to talk to everybody and uh, everybody who who allowed themselves to be recorded yes, had excellent choices for the 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 planets that they they thought were the best so we've got a lot of adopted family of of planets and objects that they they want in their little, little subset we'll call the exoclimes family
2: I like it. Oh, cool. And Jupiter's freaking awesome yeah. as well.
0: And Jupiter's freaking awesome. It's <laughs> <Which is> fair. <laughs> it's fair. But next up, we're going to have Hugh, who's going to be talking to us about all of these flagships that we, we might be hearing about. People might have heard little bits here and there, but might know not know all of them or what that means or why there are four of them. So, Hugh, what's happening? Sure.
1: Yeah, so as part of the ongoing decadal survey, which NASA are doing, they're in the process of trying to choose what the next generation of space telescopes will be, and what the specifically which one of the this generation they're gonna gonna pick. And that shouldn't be confused with the next generation space telescope, which is what the James Webb space telescope used to be called. Um, but yeah, so we're thinking about here about missions that will come after James Webb, with likely launches in the 2030s. Um, and actually, it does. It sounds like that's a long way off, right? But um, it's actually quite pertinent to get this started now because. Um, James Webb's going to launch probably 2021. Even if it launches a year after that, it's only designed to last 10 years. Limited. Uh, which I, I actually thought it was limited by coolants, but apparently not. Apparently, it's limited by fuel. So it's got to burn fuel to keep itself in this orbit around L2. And eventually, in 10 years after it's launched, it'll run out of fuel and it won't be able to maintain positioning. So, um, so by th- 2031, then we won't probably won't have a James Webb. And we probably won't have a Hubble either, because even though it's been going, well, it's older than me, um, we probably won't see it in the 2030s. So um, unless NASA want a, a few years or even maybe a longer without any flagship telescope in space, they really need to decide what to build like now. And um, also you need to take into account that it takes a long time for the development to, to occur. Right. So um I was looking this up and James Webb started development in 1996. So that's, you know, that's, that's a full, what, 23 years ago. So um, that is right. Yeah. That seems like...
0: <laughs> that's crazy. That's absolutely <laughs> I, insane.
1: Yeah. So thinking about launching something in only, what, 12, 15 years, that's maybe even cutting it fine in terms of how, how slow NASA seems to operate. But um, yeah, I think they have called that fast but, track right um yeah 20 25 years for normal planning it's... but it sounds like also nasa uh, have worked through some of the um, management and procedural problems that james webb was kind of um, you know kind of, or james webb had so they a lot of the costings in these future generation of telescopes people are saying now that actually yes with james webb we messed up with with knowing how much it's going to cost but we've we've you know we have fixed um, how we do these costings and now if if they state a number it should actually cost that number um, uh, and actually on that so so each of these missions was set a limit of five billion dollars in like 2020 usd in order to, to build and, and develop the the telescopes um, which is actually far less than if you look at something like hubble which was in about in today's money about 10 billion to develop and launch um, james webb ended up now at $10 10 billion us dollars and even something like the lhc which you know isn't isn't a see isn't isn't in astronomy but but these big science projects they do cost cost big bucks because the lhc was something like 10 15 billion dollars in um, in 2020 money so um so it's not what well, it's big it's a lot of money to, to throw around but 5 billion for a big amazing project like we'll hear about is um you know it's nothing it's it's compared to I think somebody somebody tweeted that compared to the um, air conditioning cost of Australia, it's like one fifteenth, you know, <laughs> or something like this. It's about so, a quarter yeah. of
2: NASA's annual budget. Putting in that context as well, doesn't sound very. But nice. this
1: will be spread out over ten years, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, okay, so um, so NASA whittled down the the field of, of kind of original kind of entrance down to four pe- four um projects, uh, links. Origin Space Telescope, Habex and Louvois, and I thought I'd just kind of briefly go over what each of those is offering, what they're kind of aiming for in terms of science, and how exoplanets will be observed by these potential missions. And then maybe at the end we can talk about which our which our favourite one is the one you know which one we want to see in the 2030s. So I'll start with the one I know least about, which was the Lynx telescope. So um, I, I looked for what Lynx actually stands for and apparently it doesn't have an acronym. But the X obviously means X-ray, so um, it is an X-ray space telescope. Um, it's got only a 1.4 meter effective collecting area, which is less than actually Hubble. But this is because it's observing in X-rays, and these are notoriously difficult to kind of uh, lens and and reflect into a, uh, a mirror and into a CCD the same way that kind of normal light is. So to, so to do this to 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 take images with X-rays is going to use a densely packed grazing incidence mirrors something like three meters across which will deflect the x-rays just a small amount uh, down the barrel of the telescope to take an image at the other end and um the kind of new technology that that and this mirror means that they'll be able to collect something like 50 times more than the chandra x-ray telescope which is currently in orbit and is currently kind of the cutting edge of x-ray observations um also it'll be the first um the first space telescope with a microcalorimeter instead of a just a, a, a ccd camera so um, this means that rather than just um, accumulating photons it can count individual photons and also estimate the, the individual photon energies so it'll give you a spectrum just from this this chip as well as a position kind of um, image so um, so that's a really cool new uh, frontier of X- x-ray astronomy and the main goal of links is to map black holes at high energy and high resolution uh, so, to look for kind of changing um, structures in very fine detail around black holes, which could open up new physics in these really high energy regimes. Um, it's also going to be able to detect black holes out to something like Z equals 10, so a redshift of 10, and that's only 500 million years after the Big Bang. And then we don't detect even galaxies really in that distance at the moment. So, that's something, it's quite an incredible distance to start detecting stuff. Um, And it's basically sold on being different to um, ground-based telescopes. So if you look at the other kind of optical, infrared, UV um, telescopes, they're observing in a similar wavelength range to the ground-based telescopes, which will exist at that time. So the ELTs, you know, these 30-meter range of telescopes. So um, maybe um, having an X-ray telescope in space, and you need an X-ray telescope in space because they um, they don't come through the atmosphere, right? Um, maybe that's that's a selling point for Lynx. Um, but then also you could argue that because ESA are going to launch an X-ray telescope in the 2030s called Athena, which isn't going to be as as good as, as Lynx, you could argue maybe that's one reason that Lynx might not get chosen. Um, but we'll see. Um, in terms of cost, it they, they have one version that's, that's less than 5 billion, that initial kind of limit. Um, but they could go up to 6 billion in terms of the cost. But um, it's probably the, the the most conservative cost estimate for the, for the the whole telescopes on that on my list here. Um, so moving from x-rays to the complete opposite end of the spectrum, I thought I'd talk about the next one, the next space telescope, which I didn't really know anything about, which is Origins Space Telescope. Um, so this is almost looks identical to James Webb if you look at the designs, actually. It's a six-meter mirror um, with one of these sun shields and kind of Um, folding mirror segment designs Um, although the sun shield itself is a lot lot thicker because um, in observing in the infrared you you need to kind of cryo cool so you need to cool down your instrument much much further than uh, you do for the near infrared and the optical Um, so so cooling the spacecraft is a real important thing Um, and it's going to be observing from well, from the near near infrared, so something like two to three microns, all the way out to six hundred microns. So that's almost a millimeter, right? That's almost a wavelength that you could. Well, I was going to say you could see, but obviously you can't see infrared light. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, but that's kind of getting down to what Alma can observe on the ground, actually, and. Uh, one of the cool things, one of the reasons that Origins is really cool is, is because it fills this gap between James Webb, which is observing in the near infrared, and ALMA, which is observing about, you know, 400 micrometers. So, the, this far infrared, this microwave regime. Um, so, and in this gap, there's really no instruments on the ground that can observe space, and there's no planned instruments in space that can do it either. Um, so, so that's kind of the, the niche of, of Origins. And actually, ESA's Herschel spacecraft, you may have heard about, and it, I think it ended about, um, five years ago it had a f- five-year life and uh, that was also observing in this in this regime but it's going to go something like 3.5 orders of magnitude deeper so like what's that 10 magnitudes almost um fainter than than Herschel did and the main goal the main kind of science driver is actually um well mostly galaxy stuff and observing deep into the universe um so looking at the dust in galaxies and the optical structure in galaxies in the distant universe that have been redshifted into that far infrared. But it can also do things for um, for cold dust around nearby planetary systems, for example, because this dust glows in this very, very long wavelength regime. And so dust around young stars where planets are forming, like protoplanetary disks, um, it should be able to probe those in a different regime to ALMA and hopefully you know give us some more information about how planets form around these nearby stars Um, and another thing you can do with this kind of wavelength range is transmission spectroscopy now for sun-like stars this doesn't quite work because actually in this infrared magnitude sun the sun is extremely faint Um, you need colder objects to glow in 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 this kind of regime so so actually this is perfect just for m dwarf planets um, and and in fact, at a wavelength range which James Webb doesn't currently, well, doesn't, won't reach at all. So um, out beyond about thirty micrometers, uh, and so out out at this wavelength range, you should be able to expect biosignatures, things like um, ammonia. I think uh, Hannah was telling me before because I didn't appreciate this. What else can we find out in those wavelength ranges?
0: So we're talking about where Origins is going to be really helpful in doing transmission spectroscopy of M dwarf planets. So these are going to be small planets because they're orbiting very small stars is looking at the habitability indicators of CO2 and water. Um, So being able to make measurements of those. In fact, CO2 has got two very strong features, absorption features in that wavelength range. And you've also then got these different kind of biosignatures or what we call biosignatures, uh, such as O3, so ozone out in, in the 10 to 30 Micron range, which origins are going to cover. You've got some NO2, which might be one way we can detect nitrogen-based species in habitable or potentially small planet atmospheres so secondary atmospheres and also you've got the methane bands as well that you can obviously detect there so looking at a balance between these and being able to measure these in any small planets orbiting m dwarfs is is really where origins is going to shine but it's very focused very specifically on continuing transmission spectroscopy methods
1: right thanks yeah so um moving from origins onto Habex. So Habex is stands for Habitable Exoplanets. So it's it's a telescope that's exoplanet focused and it's kind of the only exoplanet focused mission on this list. Although obviously if you have a large telescope in space, you can do a lot of cool science, not just exoplanetary science. And I think the team in Habex would be the first to stress that even though it's called Habex, it's not only um, trying to find habitable exoplanets. But that is you know, that is the key goal. That is the science driver behind the, the kind of um, the the telescope. So it's the goal is to discover and characterize Earth-like planets in the habitable zones of nearby stars, and also with the ability to detect biosignatures in the atmospheres of those planets. And um, quite surprisingly, it only has, or it will only have a four-meter telescope, um, which is relatively small as these things go, especially for something doing direct imaging of planets. It's typically, we think the bigger the telescope is, the, the, the deeper and better you can go in terms of um, detecting exponents. Uh, one, one way that they uh, are able to do this is with this off-axis design they're doing, which effectively allows a, a greater angular resolution, so effect like effective size of the telescope increases, although it doesn't increase the amount of photons you, 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 you take, you um, observe. Um, also what's needed is a high-tech coronagraph instrument on board um, which is able to kind of split the starlight from the light coming from around the star which contains the planets um, and the most importantly the the kind of the, the real key thing about Habex is it'll have a, a star shade so this will be a 50 meter wide metal thin metal sheet which is going to be unfurled from a, like a 4 meter wide spacecraft using basically Space origami, which is super interesting. You know, you see these things. I don't know if you can see these videos online of these um, these sheets of t- paper thin metal being spun out from a, a central core, which is what um, what Habex's starshade is going to do. It's super. Cool it's like stuff. these petals that are emerging from a, a central yeah, a central node.
2: Fascinating to watch. So it it'll,
1: it'll have like a forty meter wide uh, circular disc, and then there'll be these ten meter petals on the edge, and I'm not. I'm not an optics guy. I don't kind of get what the petals add, but somehow they 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 um, effectively block the starlight in a way that you can. Um, I don't know. You can you can see the planets better. I think
0: <laughs> the the starshades have to have like a very specific shape. So for a coronagraph, yes. they have to have like this incredibly precise distance between your telescope and the starshade, and the shape of the starshade has to be very very precise which is kind of crazy but it's to reduce noise from the star so when you're trying to remove the information of the like star yeah you you need to make sure that your your wave patterns are very exactly cancelling each other out so you have to produce this shape which means that any of the light that's coming from that star is cancelling itself out um so it's it's go. kind of crazy when you look at the videos of these star shades I, i'm skeptical yeah. but i'm skeptical about everything
1: no, they, they, they are incredible. So, so, in this case, it will have to be about 76,000 kilometers away from, from the, the telescope itself. So, you know, that's that's what that's a quarter of the way to the moon from, from here, from Earth. So, it's a seriously huge distance. And also, maneuver it such that it's perfectly in the line of sight of the spacecraft and kind of they, they do this formation flying um, for the duration of, of the exposure. Um, so, I think the plan was that W first would be able to um, prove that this kind of works. So there was going to be a starshade launch with W first. I'm not sure if that's going to be the case anymore um, because W first is being kind of stripped, mm-hmm. stripped out. In fact, it, called a technology it. demonstration now, right? To prove that this, this yeah. can work in space. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and even the coronagraph and, the, and for, for Habex and Louvois, We'll need a de- demonstration that you can do this kind of coronography in space, and W first is going to be the thing that proves it. So without W first, I'm not sure you could you could actually have these these telescopes we're talking about here. So it's kind of key that that gets launched in in the 2020s. Um, so in terms of instruments on Habex, it's it's just limited to a, a camera and a UV optical spectrograph. Um, but in terms of being able to get biosignatures, this is kind of this is enough, you know. It should be able to survey, I think, dozens of nearby pl- stars for Earth-like planets. And actually, another thing that Habex did is, is they, had, they have kind of three options based on cost. So there was a 4-metre mirror, which is the biggest one, but they also proposed a 3.2-metre mirror and a 2-metre mirror, respectively, which would bring the cost down to something like $4.8 billion, because currently it's kind of higher than that limit that NASA asked for. Um, but at, at a 2.4 meter mir- mirror, it's very difficult to to actually achieve the mission goals of discovering and, and getting spectra for, for a, a large array of habitable Zone exoplanets. So, um, so moving from Habex onto Louvois. So this is kind of the flagship of the flagships that we've been talking about. Um, they, Louvois was actually given a, uh, well, they didn't have to subscribe to the 5 billion dollar cost limits i think because it was known that this is really cutting edge of of what we could do in the 2030s and and you know going for something a bit more out there would be uh would be preferable maybe um so this is louvoire is designed to be able to do basically everything across a wide array of of wavelengths and science goals so actually louvoire itself means um i don't know what the l stands for Uh, large large oh there you go large uv optical o ir telescope so louvoire um, and it's basically like Origins. It's going to be building on the James Webb design, so it's going to fit into a kind of fairing-sized cylindrical spacecraft um, all of the bits and then unfold them all in space to give a sunshade at the base and then a segmented mirror which unfurls itself and, and, and um, constructs the secondary mirror out from, from that as well. Um, in fact, the, the Louvre team came up with two designs, one which was ambitious and kind of expensive and one which is even more ambitious than that and even more expensive but um but both are are really cool if you if you have a chance look at the louvois website it's a really really interesting um 10 minutes you can waste on there looking at all the things that it can do um so where james webb had a sort of uh, a room-sized sunshade to block block out the sunlight like 20 by 10 meters louvois is going to have a sunshade that's 56 meters by 56 meters in size so that's like more than half the size of a football pitch. Um, just this incredible like base in order to block sunlight in order to do these amazing observations. And so in terms of the mirror where James Webb had these 18 about one meter diameter panels, Louvois is going to have something like between 55 and 84 of these with mirror diameters for B of eight meters. So so the biggest telescopes currently operating on the ground are about this 8, eight metre class and we, we could have that in space constantly observing and then the A so the the kind of more ambitious one is going to be 15 metres so a 15 metre mirror in space which is um, twice the size of these ground-based like telescopes that we currently can can use um, in terms of instruments the Louvois team foresee like like on HST exchanging parts so exchanging the instruments in and out once once. They either die or they or they become usurped by better, more high, higher technology kind of instruments. And also, um, which is which is quite impressive when you think about the fact that uh, L'ouvre is going to be in L two rather than in low Earth orbit. So something like five times further than the Moon will have to be launching these these um, instruments out to. Um, on launch, it's going to have the an ultraviolet multi objects spectrograph. So if and if you thought that Harry Potter puns haven't made it to astronomical acronyms yet, then 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 you're wrong because it's called LUMOS, which I assume is a Harry Potter pun, but I'm not sure. Um, and it's it's going to be observing. That's just a uh, yeah an optical spectrograph, which should be able to do something like fifty thousand resolution in space, which would be one of the highest resolution instruments ever launched. Um, it's got a high definition imaging camera, which has something like fifty seven filters, all the way from optical to near infrared. It, and then it has this specific extreme chronograph for living planetary systems or the eclipse instrument and this should be able to go down to 10 to the minus 10 contrast so that's the um, 10 to the minus 10 is is the contrast between the sun and the earth so so in reflected light I should say and it should do this without a starshade. so it should be able to observe earths without a star shade out to a few tens of parsecs so that's um, something like a thousand stars in in the in the best case, um, and they expect to get something like fifty five detected um, Earths, in the with using the bigger mirror using a the 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 most expensive design, and something like six hundred other planets detected. And actually, they they show a, a a typical image of what you might see for a, a solar system like. Extra solar system and it basically looks like Carl Sagan's famous pale blue dot you see the earth you see venus you see you see jupiter you know each of them a different dot and each of those dots um it should be able to get uh spectroscopy of as well something like 200 to 2000 nanometers so the the, the ultraviolet out to the infrared and you know in in that wavelength range there are these biosignatures which uh, it should be able to detect it should be able to if there was an earth like planet around um, Tau-Seti. It should be able to tell if the Earth-like planet has an atmosphere like the Archaean Earth or an atmosphere like the Proterozoic Earth or an atmosphere like modern Earth. Um, it's a, it's a really, it's, it would be amazing to see this launched. And the, the fact that it will be ab- able to observe something like 50 of these Earth-like habitable planets uh, means that you can start doing statistics. You know, Even if only 2% of, um, of planets have life, that means that Louvois should spot a detection at least. Um, of biosignatures in an atmosphere of an extrasolar planet. Um, in the smaller case, it should only do about twenty-eight in, in the kind of with the smaller mirror, but that's still, I think, more than Habex is, is proposed to do, and it should do it in in less time as well. Um, so with more of the time for the spacecraft open to be used for galactic observations and and solar system observations and things like this. Um, in fact, one amazing thing to think about Louvois is that. Um, it should be able to get higher resolution images of jupiter than juno the current satellite orbiting jupiter can currently get um which is a quite incredible thing to think about um and so in terms of costing the the cheapest mission for louvois was about eight to ten billion so about almost double the, the the minimum that that nasa set and if we want these this a mission which could you know get get 55 earth's then we're looking at um, 13 to 16 billion US dollars. But I mean, it should be, if any of these missions are chosen, I think the science that we can get out of them is going to be incredible. Um, I think my my personal preference would be, let's go big, let's go for for Louvois A, let's let's build a 15 meter mirror in space. And then we can use that as a base for for 50 years, changing out the instruments and things like this. Um, What what do you guys think? What's your... What's your favorite mission on this list? Well, I think I probably have to agree with you, Hugh.
2: I've uh, I had the the privilege of attending a few engineering meetings for LUVOIR. and I mean, just honestly sitting in the back and 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 getting an idea about the decisions that are made. And I think the serviceability angle is really is really cool. Not for the fact that we can just you know it's sustainable, we could keep it up there for longer, but also that it requires us to innovate a little bit on orbit, you know, and and, and learn how to launch stuff to L two and service at L two. Maybe even possibly, wouldn't that be awesome? Because uh, I know John Grunsfeld, he he likes to talk. About you know the fact that we're losing our on-orbit capabilities a little bit, and we could be building these things on orbit and, and doing the stuff up there. So, as well as the excellent science it could do for us, the, it could really push us human space flight in low, low Earth orbit and, and building stuff up there as well. Which uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm very excited about, even though I don't know anything about it. But I'm sure Hannah knows more about the science.
0: <laughs> I'm not currently putting my uh, my hat in any any ring right now. Uh, but no, in terms of in terms of the what Andrew said, there's so much external to these any of these concepts that needs to be continued to be funded and and supported and maintained and innovated to get these big missions out there. So I I think that there's a lot of things external to these kinds of calls that are so important that we need to keep pushing for as well. So I'm I'm excited, like you said, for any of these to go up. Even the X-ray one sounds fascinating. Even they are amazing at presenting. The, the Lynx team fully convinced me that it's going to be an amazing mission when I was at AAS last year. So um, <laughs> I couldn't repeat any of the science to you, but I was in awe the entire time. Um, so i I, I really I excited for what the future of any and all of these kinds of missions are going to be. And we really just need to keep pushing and keep making sure that it's clear all of these technologies that are being developed, all of the things that are being developed right now have implications far, far into the future. They might not be affecting us right now, but like we saw with the Apollo missions, 50 years later, all of that technology had just weaved itself into everything that we use every single day. So we've got to really just keep our eyes open.
1: Yeah, no, I agree.
2: And I know there is um, you know, a tendency to, to think about the costs and maybe this is falling on... Uh, you know uh, preaching to the choir when it when it comes to our audience but you know we're not sending that money to space right that money is being spent here on earth uh, to to support the project to support scientists like us even uh, tangentially um, so you know it's an investment in uh, in science now that will as Hannah said extend into the future continue to support teams and PhD students all the way down the line for another you know x number of decades hopefully uh, so it's, it's a big investment we need to take some time to figure it out but we live in exciting times as I always say
0: As long as we don't live in interesting times, as Terry Pratchett (laughs) puts it.
2: Uh, Well, it has the
1: implication of also being bad. (laughs) (laughs) Exciting sounds good, right? Uh, Exciting
0: sounds good. Interesting times. Interesting times Hmm. indeed.
1: Right, so this month in Explanatory Science, there's been a lot of interesting news. So let's go over to Andrew to hear about some of it. I think some of it might prove quite controversial, I'm looking forward to, to talking about
2: it. Yeah, we, we timed our, uh, our recording session well, if anyone is following us on Twitter might have already seen. But let's uh, let's start at the beginning um, with a quick update to remind us, of course, that we live in, uh, as I just said, very exciting times. And as of recording, we now have, uh, we have 4,044 known planets from uh, NASA's uh, Exoplanet Archive, which is which is exciting. I think, you know, we could do with reminding folks of how far we've come every every now and then. But obviously, I can't cover all of these new detections. So let's lead with some of the notable detections from the last month. So we now know of a sibling uh, to many astronomers' favorite planet. Uh, so this month, a second planet around Beta Pic, Beta Pictoris was announced. So this is Beta Pictoris C, which is a nine Jupiter mass planet on an eccentric, 1200 day orbit at about 3 AU uh, that was revealed with 10 years of HARPS radial velocity data so this is kind of cool this is a popular planet uh, or popular system that now has a little sibling so well, actually quite a large sibling in this case. Um, we also have a new very sensitive multicolor speckle instrument uh, called Allopiki or Alapique, Uh, and this is on Gemini North, uh, atop Mauna Kea in in Hawaii. Uh, And it solved a somewhat long-standing mystery in exoplanet astronomy this month, which is notably, which star uh, of the binary pair Kepler-13ab does the exoplanet Kepler-13b orbit? up to now, uh, it wasn't possible to determine which of the the pair the planet was orbiting due to their uh, close separation. But using this new speckle imaging um, technique, which we can use to take a vast number of exposures every minute, the effect of the turbulence of the Earth's atmosphere can be filtered out, and then because of the particular unique um, to Alopeque, uh unique blue-red speckle imaging contrast, uh, you could then detect Kepler-13b's extended atmosphere, which is very hot and absorbs a lot in the blue. So comparing the differences between uh, the blue absorption uh, between the two stars revealed that the answer is in fact Kepler-13a, so we now know, um, or Kepler-13aba. So, also this month, Sarah Blunt from Caltech and colleagues report the discovery of HR 5183b, which is a three Jupiter mass planet on a 50 to 100 year orbit, using uh, data from HiRES on Keck, Tull on McDonald, and the automated planet finder on Lick. Um, the special thing about this planet is its eccentricity. So up at 0.84, it is currently the highest or the, the most eccentric uh, orbit of any planet that we've discovered to date. This takes the, uh, the planet's orbit from Jupiter to beyond the orbit of Neptune if we superimposed it on our solar system. So uh, the cause of this eccentricity is, uh, it remains unclear, um, a now ejected companion planet of a similar mass that caused a gravitational interaction of some sort is one hypothesis but future detections from gaia are expected to shed some more some more light or some more photons on the mystery
1: one cool thing about that as well is that it in i think it's got a 50 year orbit or something like this there, right yeah 50 to 100 years um i said yeah so in in 30 years because it's currently at perihelion in 30 years it might be detectable with w first right because it'll be at ap-helion, at Neptune distance. aphelion and it'll be warmed up from this star because it? it'll have just, you know, 20 years ago been passing it, and we might be able to spot it with direct imaging, which is really cool. We've
2: got to be thinking long term, you know, long term in terms of our telescopes and long term in terms of our observations. Yeah, so, well, yeah, or Habex could be spotting it. Yeah, that's true. So let's keep a, an, a telescopic eye on 5183b anyway. Um, Furthermore, it seems like a trend is emerging uh, amongst the galaxy's largest worlds. Uh, Most Hop-Jupiter exoplanets do not seem to have a nearby planetary companion in their system. Uh, There are only a few exceptions that we know of, like WASP-47b. So the reasons as to why that might be are there's probably quite a few of them, but none of them are confirmed as of of yet. Um, But figuring this out could provide valuable insights into planet formation and migration scenarios. So there was a tentative detection of a companion planet to the hot Jupiter wasp 50 b reported last year in 2018, um, which itself would only have been the third such discovery. Um, However, new results published this month using uh, data from the 1.2 meter stellar telescope in the Canary Islands could not confirm another candidate in that system. So this suggests yet another lonely hot Jupiter and maybe that we're not much closer to figuring out why that is the case destroyer of worlds destroyer of worlds you know if you get basically if you see a hot jupiter you can statistically be fairly confident there won't be any other planets in that in that system which right. is which is uh, bizarre i wasn't aware of that trend um, but it's clearly pretty strong and figuring this out would seem like it would give us a lot of insights into how those those worlds get to be the way they are um so news from tess was uh three new worlds uh in the same system namely toi 270 it uh, has a longer designation that I can't recall, um, but we're calling it um, TESS Object of Interest 270. Uh, there were three worlds in the system reported this month. Um, they orbit the a nearby M-Dwarf host star, which is of course very on brand for TESS, uh, within you know a 10% of an AU, so all very compact system. Um, this puts the three planets, uh, the hottest of those three around 500 Kelvin and the coolest around 350 Kelvin. But the interesting thing is the distribution in their sizes, which are approximately 1.2 2.4 and 2.1 Earth radii, uh, respectively, with increasing distance from the star. So ardent listeners and general clever clogs will know that those fall on either side of the so-called planet radius gap that we're, that we're figuring out at the moment at around 1.6 Earth radii, where we've seen a dearth of exoplanet detections in the past. So maybe an interesting laboratory for, uh, for planet formation and evolution. And uh, we're hoping that JWST will be able to shed a little bit more light on that. But Tess is already throwing up some cool things. So exciting times for atmospheric spectroscopy this month. Uh, some big news uh, and fresh off the uh, embargoed presses, I assume, uh, the, the the massive news of the month comes in the form of a strong water vapor detection in the atmosphere of k two eighteen b which is a warm Neptune-like planet first discovered by the K2 mission back in 2015. So there are two separate papers uh, published just this week um, one from a team led by Bjorn Benecke from the University of Montreal, and the other from Angelos Tsierras from UCL, both of which confirm the discovery of water vapor in the planet's atmosphere. They both use uh, the same data set, uh, eight transits from uh, Hubble's wild, Wide Field Camera 3. And while this isn't the first detection of water vapor in an exoplanet atmosphere, It is significant in that it originates in the atmosphere of an eight Earth mass planet orbiting in the habitable zone of its M dwarf host star. So that's those all kind of cool, cool things adding up to a very interesting detection. So the data from Hubble does not confirm uh, how much water is there, the volume of the water, but does give a positive detection at greater than three sigma. Um, previous data on the, on the planet's properties suggested it could either be a silica planet with an extended atmosphere or a planet with a small core and dense helium hydrogen atmosphere with some water uh, thrown in there at less than 50%. So these these recent uh, results, uh, the Beneke paper, I should note, is still not peer-reviewed, but these recent results do provide uh, evidence for the latter, a thick hydrogen-helium atmosphere with traces of water, probably a metallic core, as well as, you know, giving us important insights into the transition between this rocky and Neptune-like planets. So uh, in my opinion, these findings definitively rule out being uh, the planet being habitable, as we currently understand it, but that doesn't seem to be what's made it into the press. So um, I'm going to go to you, Hannah, first for, for your thoughts on this. You've already given me some, as you've been quite busy with, with press responses, but what do you make of these findings?
0: I make these findings as you just described them accurately and thank you very succinctly.
2: I'd do my best.
0: Are really exciting. <laughs> like this is this is a planet that is the coldest of the transiting exoplanets where an atmosphere has been detected, and it's the coldest of the transiting exoplanets where we've we actually got a measure of water vapor absorption in the atmosphere and that's fantastic that's really really interesting and like you said we need to try and understand what these mini neptunes are where does a mini neptune where does a neptune sized world transition to a rocky you know terrestrial world we don't know we genuinely have absolutely no bloody clue and every single data point we've got Gives us more information. And that's really exciting. That's really exciting for all of the different types of comparative planetology that we're doing. Some of the quotes from the authors of both studies, it's not unique to one study over the other. Some are slightly more inflammatory than others, are off the charts in terms of inflating what this story is, using really bad terminology, which is very misleading. and in some ways, looking at the quotes that are being directly quoted, and I talked to a number of reporters uh, over the last few days and asked if those were direct quotes, and they were. They were direct quotes from the authors. Yeah. I don't necessarily blame the press for getting it horrifically wrong. Uh, and, and in some places, quoting that a habitable planet has been found. Um, and we need to be more careful as scientists we need to be really careful with our language we need to make sure that we're being precise and we're being clear and we repeat ourselves and i think there was me and a large contingent of people on twitter yesterday uh you know rallying um putting out fires and trying to make things a little bit more accurate
2: yeah uh words have power uh, and the specifically the words that that we use and how we as scientists Interpret those words compared to how um, you know a, a citizen might be a citizen scientist or or someone who's just you know looking at the newspaper that day might interpret the word habitable. Two very different, um, two very different definitions. But I think even in this case, I know you're totally right. We can't really put too much blame with the with the press here. They did their research. They were thorough. These are direct quotes that that are being used to build the narrative around habitability, which does tend to get more attention whether we like it or not people want to figure out uh, you know where we are and whether if there's you know life out there or if we found it but again and i'm sure we've mentioned this how many times during our 30 odd episodes about being very careful about the words we use people are going to get bored of this people are not going to you know put up with us constantly <laughs> saying everything's habitable when you know clearly uh, there's a lot of limitations in this case specifically so what can we do about right. it?
0: they found water again on mars yesterday you know it's really very boring <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you think the Mars people would know. Uh, and to be fair, we should start to know now as well. We've had at least a decade, uh, 15 years now of, of these, you know, maybe not crying wolf, but being very careful with the word habitable and life, you know, being able to host life and Earth-like and Earth-twin. And I, I don't think we have the excuses that we had 10 to five years ago to say that, you know, we have ignorance about, you know, about that word and different teams use it differently. I think that, that doesn't really fly anymore.
1: Any thoughts of you? I mean, I, it, it is such a cool detection, right? I mean, there's it's it's such a shame that it was mis you know misreported because finding finding water in the atmosphere of something that's that cold that's you know Earth, well, wow. Earth temperature, yes, <laughs> <laughs> which is is the only correct Earth something I think you can say about yeah. this system yeah. is has the same temperature as Earth at the at the one you know
0: with some very different uncertainties associated with that.
1: Yes, true.
0: Very different uncertainties. We don't actually have a direct measure of the temperature of this planet's atmosphere, which makes it very hard to characterize. Yes, you're right.
2: Yeah, so in terms of the yeah. two different approaches or the two different papers, similar approaches, same data set, coming to the same conclusion. That's good science. That's good science
0: right there. Yeah, that's great. It's great to see that both of them came to came to the same conclusion.
2: Well, uh, moving on and running somewhat contrary to the rest of the news in spectroscopy this month, uh, Laura Kreidberg and her team report the absence of a thick atmosphere on the Earth-sized uh, exoplanet LHS thirty eight forty four B from some really cool work they they did using thermal phase curve variations, which were collected by Spitzer. I believe only the second time that this has been applied; uh, the previous time being fifty five Cancri E, which is very much hotter. Um, so the, they found uh, symmetrical, high amplitude phase curves from the planet, which suggested a day-side temperature of like a thousand Kelvin, a night-side temperature of, 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 of pretty much close to freezing, uh, and a surface of bare dark rock with a very low albedo of about 0.2, so a basaltic rock surface covered by not much atmosphere and incredible heat. Not a very homely place, but a really cool, a cool discovery, uh, a cool finding at least. Uh, and finally i'd like to round off with, uh, with a kind of interesting theoretical modelling paper which uh, builds on the idea of superhabitable planets which i think i've touched on before um, which is this idea that there could actually exist worlds uh, out there in the in the galaxy that are more suited to terrestrial life than the earth um you know we we often think of the earth as, as being this pinnacle of habitability and it's the one we have to judge all the other planets against but it's possible that that there are conditions that limit us habitability to some degree, and results from a comprehensive modeling study uh, using the powerful Rocky 3D GCM. So Stephanie Olson uh, from University of Chicago and her team suggest that on some exoplanets with more favorable ocean circulation patterns, um, these could host a greater diversity and a larger biosphere. Um, so things like slower rotation rates, higher atmospheric pressures, and continents that are distributed differently uh, on the planet's surface may result in more efficient ocean upwelling, which is a very key part of, of the ocean system, in which nutrient-rich water from the deep ocean is returned to the photic zone at the surface, and that would then boost the habitability of those oceanic planets relative to the Earth. Uh, we haven't found one of those yet, but it's it's theoretically possible that they're out there. Well, on that note, and with our Exoclimes uh, family having adopted a few of their own exoplanets during Hannah's segment, uh, it's time to wrap the show up. So thank you very much for joining us for another exciting installment of Exocast. Uh, we will return next month uh, for more exoplanetary news and views where I will be talking to a new special guest. Until then, you can check out all of our previous shows on our website, exocast.org, and on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at exo underscore and, of course, like us on Facebook. So until next time, bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Exocons. I have
6: Exocons.